0: So this will be the concluding talk in this uh, series. Yesterday we we looked at the the constituents of our experience, these five interacting, interfusing clusters, and in doing so we might have got the idea that everything tend to tended towards differentiation, dissolution and there seem perhaps for some of us little place here for any sense of a coherent uh, person or self, let alone the sort of uh, society that persons might work together to create and sustain. So I need to, as it were, look now at the other side of the picture, not at the notions of not-self and impermanence that are so much emphasized in Buddhism, but to look at how this is simply one aspect of a wider vision in which the Buddha does not see as the end goal of these practices, a kind of um, dissolving into emptiness or something, but rather the creation of another kind of person and another kind of world. And I'll start by reading out a passage um, which some of you might be familiar with, Which in which the Buddha somehow gives a metaphor for what it is he's trying to do. He says, suppose monks, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road traveled upon by people in the past. He would follow it And he would see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past, with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then that man would inform the king or a royal minister, sire, Know that while wandering through the forest, I saw an ancient path. I followed it and saw an ancient city. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate that city, and sometime later that city would become prosperous and successful, well-populated, filled with people, attained to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw this ancient path, the ancient road travelled on by the Buddhas of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path, That is appropriate. Seeing, thinking, speaking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, and concentrating. And I followed that path. And by doing so, I have directly known aging and death, suffering, craving, cessation, and The path. In other words, I have come to know the four ennobling truths. What is perhaps uh, surprising is that he doesn't say, I followed this noble eightfold path and it led me to nirvana, the end of suffering. He doesn't say that. He says that this path. Leads to the four noble truths. So the metaphor, which starts with the idea of someone going into a forest, stumbling across an ancient road, following where that road leads, and finding this ancient ruined city, is translated by the Buddha into how he envisions where his practice will lead, where the practice of this eightfold path will lead. It will lead to the four noble truths. In other words, the ancient city is a metaphor for the four noble truths and the restoration of the ancient city is a metaphor for the kind of civilization that this way of life could give rise to. Now, again, we often have a perhaps rather romantic idea that the Buddha was a person who spent as much time as he could meditating on mountaintops and and wandering through forests and so on and avoiding the hustle and bustle of the world. This is actually quite false. Uh, the Buddha established his main centers in close proximity to the major cities of his time. We also have to bear in mind that most of his supporters, most of his prominent lay followers were merchants, bankers, um, Kings, rulers, ministers, doctors. We have to remember that the, the Buddha was born at a time in India when the whole society was undergoing um, a radical transformation and change. A change from um, a largely agricultural society which was populated by small um, tribal groups, clans, largely a village-based economy, uh, where the main uh, political model was that of the, um, what is technically called the oligarchic republic. In other words, um, the Buddha came out of a society... Uh, in which the notion of kingship had not yet arisen. There were no monarchic states until around the Buddha's time. And in fact, his own homeland of Shakya still preserved many of the features of um, a tribal republic in which there was no ruler or leader or king. The community was governed by a council of elders drawn from the main families. And this is why it's a nonsense to think of the Buddha being born as a prince who would then become a king. That was simply not the case. At the time of the Buddha's birth, Shakya was already incorporated into a large autocratic kingdom to the west called Kosala, the king of whom was a man called Pasenadi, who became one of the Buddha's primary benefactors. So what was happening at the Buddha's time was that this uh, agrarian lifestyle, these small tribal republics, were being replaced by the institution of monarchy. And this was made possible because of the economic development in the Gangetic Plains had reached a point where it was generating surplus. It was generating more wealth than was needed just to survive. And this surplus enabled two things. It enabled uh, powerful men, rulers, to employ standing armies, which could therefore be used for Uh, military purposes alone and this is what enabled the swallowing up bit by bit of the different republics of the time and their merging into powerful kingdoms. There were two great kingdoms at the Buddha's time, on the north of the Ganges, Kosala and south of the Ganges Magadha. The Buddha's two main uh, centers or communities were, it, were right next to the capital cities of those, these two big kingdoms. This was the world in, we, in which he lived. The second advantage of, <clears throat> of um, economic surplus in the Gangetic area was that it enabled uh, young, or maybe not necessarily young, but men and women... To leave home, set out on the road, and seek out what we would now call a life of the mind. That may be philosophy, or religion, or meditation. And when the Buddha left home, he joined these many wandering monks, ascetics, renunciants, who spent their time traveling and walking about North India... Seeking instruction, seeking wisdom, engaging in debate. And they were only able to do that because there was enough surplus um, wealth that they could beg. They could go from house to house with their bowls and people had enough over to give them food. Now these might sound rather mundane facts, but they're very important in in getting a sense of the kind of world in which the Buddha lived. So when the Buddha gives this metaphor of a city, he is specifically addressing the new situation of his time, the emergence of the very first cities in the Gangetic area. These had only been around for a few decades at the most, maybe a hundred years. They'd started to grow. The Buddha was therefore working within uh, an urban environment which was beginning to um, show the possibilities of um, a civilization. Remember, Remember, civilization is based in the word civitas, the city, So I don't think it's accidental that he chooses this metaphor. He sees his teaching, his path, as leading to a way of life that could become the basis for another kind of civilization. In fact, yes, a civilization, to core. So this gives a very different picture to that of the Buddha and his followers renouncing the world and trying to spend their time getting out of the cycle of birth and death. There may have been monks in his community who saw that as their primary aim in life, but that was not the only function of these uh, groups. The Buddha saw himself as an educator, as a healer, as someone who sought to influence the direction of the society in which he lived. He saw his vision as one that would overturn the whole Brahmanic culture of India. Specifically, he sought to overturn the caste system. Uh, the, 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 the priestly caste of the Brahmins um, saw the ordering of society as divinely given. In their creation myths, uh, the unformed Brahman, or the divine principle of the universe, achieves form in a, in a range of stages. And one of those stages is the emergence of what's called the Mahapurusha, the great person, a kind of a godlike figure, personified god. And from the head of this god, the Brahmins, the priestly caste emerged, from the arms, the ruling caste, of which the Buddha was a member. From the body, the merchants, and from the legs the workers. And each person in each caste was um, uh, supposed to fulfill their caste duty by honoring their place in the world that had been decreed by God. The Buddha rejects all of this. In fact, the word Dharma in Hinduism uh, doesn't mean The teaching of the Buddha, as we now would understand it here, let alone the idea of conditioned arising. Dharma means your duty as a member of your caste. So, when the Buddha introduced his teaching, (coughs) he rejected the whole idea of caste and he said that his community resembled an ocean that when the just as when the great rivers of the world pour into the ocean and thereby lose their differences, you can no longer speak of the Ganges or the Yamuna or the Brahmaputra, it's all merged in one ocean. Likewise, he says, when people enter my sangha and my teaching, they cease to be Brahmins, rulers, um, merchants, workers, they become, all of those differences are lost. And in the same way that the ocean is pervaded by the taste of salt, so too his teaching is pervaded by the taste of freedom. Now freedom here doesn't mean spiritual freedom. Freedom. It means the freedom to create your own life according to your own lights. So the Buddha's critique of his social critique is also necessarily a renewed vision of what a person can become. The Buddha envisaged a kind of democratic meritocracy in which each person was free to create him or her self rather than be forced to live according to the dictates of a supposedly divine order. So it's here, therefore, we come, I think, into the more... Um, Uh, the the, the deeper meaning of this idea, not self, the Buddha's not denying that there is a self. He's denying that our self is somehow pre-given and pre-ordained by some religious authority. And he's opening up the possibility, therefore, that we go beyond the sense of a fixed or permanent identity and recognize that our being, our body, our feelings, our thoughts, all the things we spoke of yesterday are impermanent, conditional, contingent and therefore open to transformation and change. The Buddha says if there were a true Permanent, eternal self there would be nothing you could do you'd always be the same there'd be no possibility for either personal or social transformation so the Buddha's teaching is not just a spiritual teaching it has equally um, psychological um, moral and social implications so if we go to the uh, the idea of self, we find um, the Buddha on a number of occasions talking about how he understands the self, the person, the individual, the unique person, in a way that's quite different to that which prevailed at his time. This is from the Sutta Nipata, the, um, the text I mentioned at the very beginning. The Buddha says, by action, and again the word is karma, karma, by action is one a farmer, by action is one a craftsman, by action is one a merchant, a servant, a thief, a soldier, a priest, a ruler, In this way, the wise see action as it really is, see karma karma as it really is. They see conditioned arising and they understand how actions give results. Now this very early text um, uh, is not saying there is no self, there is no person. It's saying that You, as a person, are the result of what you do. You're not the result of what God or any other divine agency has determined for you. There is no essential, eternal identity or self, either in a religious, in a moral, or in a social sense. That each person creates him or herself, through what they do. uh, Nowadays, this is sometimes called a performative conception of self. So again, we come back to this principle of conditioned arising. We see that the, the, the process of the four truths, which I've again explained in terms of one leading to the next, leading to the next, through the performance of actions, knowing suffering, letting go of craving, experiencing stopping, creating a path. All of these are tasks and it's through the performance of those tasks that one begins to shape and construct one's own identity as a person. It's open-ended Of course, each person has their own particular strengths and weaknesses and gifts and uh, all other manner of uh, their temperament, their disposition, so it's not as though it's utterly unstructured. We work from the givens of our body, our brain, our minds, our culture, our upbringing, but within those constraints... We form ourselves. So through seeing through the fiction of self in the sense of a fixed ego that never changes, we open up the possibility to become someone. In other words, the self is not a thing. The self is a process the self is a stream it's a movement it's an unfolding and that's the the liberating element of what the buddha's teaching here now this becomes even more explicit when we look at another very early verse this is from the dhammapada its verse number 80 where the Buddha says, just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher, that's someone who makes arrows, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, Atanam dhammati pandita, The wise person tames the self. The wise person tames the self. Or we might say the wise person tames himself. But the important thing is that in the Pali, the word self, atta, atman, is in the accusative singular form. In other words, it's the direct object of the verb. In the same way that the field is what the farmer irrigates or acts upon. The arrow is what the Fletcher constructs. The piece of wood is what the carpenter or the sculptor shapes. So the self or the person is compared to a field, compared to an arrow compared to a piece of wood. And the practice, therefore, of the Pandita, the wise person, is to work with those materials. What we described yesterday, the the clusters of body, feelings, perceptions, inclinations, consciousness, these are like the raw materials of our life which we can work, which we can fashion, which we can develop, which we can evolve. So in what sense is it then that we might think of ourselves to be like a field, particularly with the notion of irrigation? I already mentioned this yesterday, this idea of how this practice is like the carving of channels, the irrigation of a field. But the image of a field and that of a farmer is also an image of creating the conditions under which something can grow, something can come into life. You have a, a barren field, a fallow field, which is cut off from uh, water. And of course it's just dry, it's stony, Only a few weeds here and there are able to grow. But by working that land, by carving channels through it, by giving it access to water, you enable that field to produce a crop, whether it be an orchard of trees, whether it be a field of wheat or corn, whether it be flowers. It's now something that's living. And again, this is another metaphor that suggests that what the Buddha's interested in is breaking us free from the conditions of death or Mara. Mara is the barren field where nothing grows. It's all fixed in place, doesn't budge. The practice of mindfulness, of The whole eightfold path is basically a process of irrigation in this metaphor. How can we open up our lives in such a way that we can literally begin to flourish, that our lives can become enriched, that things begin to emerge and grow and be created? It's a very positive image. Of what a person can become. It's, it suggests a creativity, the fact that our lives can produce things that previously did not exist. That's what it means to create. Someone reminded me the other day of this uh, quotation from uh, Henry David Thoreau. Uh, Most men, said Thoreau, and by men he meant human beings. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation, and go to the grave with their with their song still inside them. Which is a very tragic image. In other words, we have this song within us that we want to sing, but somehow we get stuck in lives of quiet desperation. And before we know it we're dead, and we have yet to sing our song. Now that's again an image very much of, of Mara, who keeps us somehow metaphorically dead, and all of our our yearnings, our intuitions, our longings to to sing our song of life is never realized. And that's the real tragedy of human life so the image here that of um, nourishing a field is about allowing ourselves to grow to sing to create likewise the image of the of the arrow again each of these images is quite different and uh, they each point to a somewhat different point an arrow is something that you have to put together out of different materials. You need the wooden shaft. you need the metal um, tip. You need the what's called the fletch, the, the, the feathers in the end of the arrow, to allow it aerodynamic accuracy. And the skilled Fletcher is a person who's able to take these different elements and put them together in a way that they give rise to a whole, W-H-O-L, that is more than just the sum of its parts. It's not equal to the sum of its parts. It achieves a kind of integrity of its own. And of course the human person is likewise not equal to the sum of his or her own parts. Stephen or Joe or John or Mary are not reducible to their bodies, their feelings, their perceptions, their inclinations, their consciousnesses. They emerge or they are the configuration of those things that has its own integrity and meaning. So an this idea of an arrow is therefore a call for achieving an overall integrity in one's life in which the different facets of one's person are brought into a kind of unity rather than nowadays we talk of our, our lives being fragmented or alienated or somehow incomplete This is an image of of working towards a completeness in our lives in which all of our energies are somehow directed towards a single goal in life. And that's, again, the image of the arrow. if, If an arrow is well made, it's able to be fired towards its target with unerring accuracy and strike the bullseye. And likewise, if we take that as a metaphor for our own lives, it's a metaphor of bringing our different skills, our capacities, our understanding, our our physical and mental and emotional energies into some kind of harmony whereby we can then focus on the realising Uh, the goals that really matter for us in this life and that of course is an image of the person of the self but of course it's a process, it's not some fixed thing and then you have the, the idea of a piece of wood something that on the face of it has no particular value, it's just a hunk of wood we might have gotten it from the timber yard or found it lying in our garden or in a shed and then we work it we fashion it and remember that again this image is one the Buddha used when he spoke of mindfulness or recollection he compared it to a wood turner who knows exactly how to uh, relate to and work with his materials, being able to turn what is just a lump of wood into a bowl, into a chair leg, into a beautiful sculpture. So in other words, this is an image of transmuting or transforming a kind of dull, um, unformed matter into something that has value Or beauty or purpose. And this too is another image of self. We can think, therefore, of our of of, of our bodies, our feelings, our perceptions, our inclinations as like unformed matter, wood, that we can work, that we can turn, that we can transform. Uh, And again, it's all of these activities call upon every aspect within the Eightfold Path. It's not just about mindfulness or concentration or meditation. It's how we see the world, how we think about things, how we communicate, how we bodily act with others in society, how we literally work, how we make use of resources, how we support ourselves and those who depend on us. It's about effort, it's about commitment. And also, of course, it's about recollection, mindfulness, concentration, training the mind, focusing, and so on. So the, the, the Eightfold Path describes, as it were, the the complex of activities where through which we uh, create and transform who we are in order to achieve what is most uh, of most importance and value for us. So there we have a vision of self. Um, we also have a vision of the fact that when we work together with others in this way, we become a community. And such a community is that which begins to give the possibilities of another culture or perhaps in the end another kind of civilization. So let's just try to take that image of, 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 of self emergence into the framework of the the Eightfold Path and the Four Truths. In the image of the city, in the metaphor of the city, we start with the path, the Eightfold Path, that then leads to the ancient city which is understood as the practice of the Four Truths. But, of course, the fourth truth is the eightfold path. So, in other words, the eightfold path leads to the four truths, but the fourth truth takes us back to the eightfold path, which leads to the four truths, the fourth of which is the eightfold path, which leads... You can see where I'm getting at. In other words, we're talking about um, a process in which each is somehow embedded in all the others. It's a kind of holomorphic picture. What is the first uh, step of the Eightfold Path? It's called Samadhiti right view or appropriate seeing and then when the Buddha describes what this appropriate seeing is what does he say? What is this right view? He says it is the correct understanding of the four noble truths so once again we find that the first step of the Eightfold path opens up into the four truths the fourth of which is the Eightfold path and the first of which is the understanding of the four truths or if we go to say uh, appropriate mindfulness or recollection you know, right mindfulness we look at what the Buddha describes as right mindfulness and where do we find that that leads us to after the breath, (laughs) the body, the feelings which is often where we kind of stop the mind and then the Dhamma And, uh, and the Dhamma includes the five clusters the five hindrances the six elements what are called the seven factors of enlightenment And then finally, the Four Noble Truths. Again, we come to this same point. And what this shows, I think, is that the Buddha has a kind of a vision of all of these various elements working in tandem, working in harmony, in each of which is already implicit all the other practices and ideas that make up the process. It's not a simple, linear, A to Z approach at all. When one, each time one somehow arrives at the Eightfold Path, one somehow comes to yet another experience or take on the four truths. It's going continuously spiraling to greater and greater depths. And we've already seen that the Buddha describes his awakening as his understanding of the four truths in their 12 aspects. There are some other passages I have here which talk of the four truths. He says, whoever in the past, the present or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so by becoming fully awakened to the four truths and then he says the he's talking about the four truths he says this is suffering this is craving this is cessation this is the path and in each truth there are innumerable nuances innumerable details innumerable implications He's laying out, it seems, a kind of uh, a vision of how the person and how a society can live. He's providing a kind of template, a kind of framework for the, the rebuilding of this ancient city. He also makes it clear that a person who has... Um, or is engaging with these four truths uh, in the way that I've been trying to describe also achieves a kind of existential weight or groundedness so again it's not the idea of sort of free floating being like a cloud this kind of stuff but rather different he says that the person who a person who is not grasped the import or the meaning of the four truths is like a tuft of cotton wool or kapok. Kapok's what we used to stuff these cushions with. A tuft of cotton, um, which is something that will be blown easily hither and thither by the wind. So there's a sense that if one hasn't somehow engaged consciously with some way of life like this, one has very little to to ground one's existence. And lacking any direction and purpose, uh, such a person, he says, is prone to to look up at the face of another ascetic or Brahmin and think, oh, this one surely knows the truth, this one surely sees things as they are. In other words, there's a kind of yearning for authority outside of yourself, an endless seeking of the Guru. This is really a parody of the Guru. And remember that in although in the Upanishads, the idea of the Guru, the authoritative spiritual teacher, uh, who, who transmits wisdom to the Chela, the disciple was well established the Buddha never speaks of himself as a guru he, 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 when he died he made it clear that he appointed no one as his successor and he says to Ananda um, after, shortly before his death he says do not think that when I have gone that you will have no teacher the Dhamma will be your teacher. This is a point that comes again and again and again. The Buddha wished to leave as his legacy a set of ideas, of practices, of values that somehow all work together. Again, in the sort of way I think should be clear by now. And that alone is enough. You don't need to submit to the authority of some enlightened teacher. And another um, feature, uh, another characteristic of someone who has entered the stream of the Eightfold Path is, is, is that that person has become independent of others in the teacher's dispensation, which means they no longer have to rely on the authority of another person to decide what to do with their lives. When you enter this path, authentically and truly, that gives you the framework, the adequate framework for making choices, doing what you value, fulfilling your own life. And again, we... We're probably familiar with this famous statement that the Buddha makes shortly before he dies. He says, you should be islands to yourself with yourself as your island, with yourself as your refuge, with the Dhamma as your island, with the Dhamma as your refuge. And he again uses the word self. In the end the only real refuge you can have is your own self, your own experience of the Dhamma. So it's very much um, a vision of uh, self-reliance, becoming autonomous, becoming your own person, but not in a kind of egoistic isolation but rather as working towards with others another kind of culture and another kind of world so he says the one who has understood the four truths is like a stone column 16 feet high half of which is sunk in the ground and half of which stands above it. For no matter how hard the wind blows, such a person does not shake, quake, or tremble. So this is the other vision, that the four truths, the eightfold path, uh, provide a kind of groundedness And so you have this rather strange image of a 16-foot column of stone, half of which is buried in the ground. Now I wonder what that means. You can understand, I mean, why 16? Well, it seems quite clear. When 16 is buried in the ground, 8 feet will stand above, 8 feet will be below. 8, presumably, refers to the Eightfold Path. In other words, your, your practice is um, both visible, it's on the surface, what you see, think, speak, say, etc., do, but it's also invisible, it's also underground. And I wonder if this is not a sort of premonition of what we would now call the unconscious that part of the process of this practice is not going on on the surface of consciousness. But as we practice, we also seem to be molding and shaping and deepening things beneath the surface of our conscious awareness. And that's why I think, for example, it's important to sit, to meditate on a regular basis – even though any given sitting may not be particularly wonderful. In fact, you might sit for half an hour and your mind is just going all over the place. But I feel that the very act of doing such a thing, as in so many other areas of our life, particularly when we're learning something or training in something, we shouldn't judge ourselves just by how we feel about it at the moment. But we need to recognize that we're, we're participating in a process of, of change, of growth, of understanding that is happening within us, maybe at some deep neural level of experience, that we're not actually conscious of. And this, I think, also is often the, uh, often the case when, you know we study something like, let's say, Buddhist philosophy. And I can remember when I first started studying these things, it didn't make any sense at all. I couldn't figure it out. It all seemed to be pretty incomprehensible. And then I kept reading and thinking and discussing these things. And a year or so or two later would come back to a text that a year before had not made any sense at all and suddenly I could read it. It suddenly made sense. And I don't think this was just because I'd acquired a particular body of information but also because I'd somehow allowed these ideas to sink in permeate down into my whole body-mind. And I think it's very much the case with with any kind of training or practice in whatever field that the the effects that it has are not necessarily discernible in each moment of that training or practice. And so the groundedness of this practice seems to come through the commitment to it over the long term. And finally, I'd like to finish with another metaphor that we find um, in the the suttas. And this is the, the metaphor of the raft. And the Buddha says, Suppose, monks, a man in the course of a journey saw a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful, and whose further shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge going across. So he thought, Suppose I collect grass, twigs, "'branches and leaves, and bind them together as a raft. "'And supported by the raft, "'and making an effort with my hands and feet, "'I get safely across to the other shore. "'And having arrived at the other shore, "'he might think, "'This raft has been very helpful to me. "'Suppose I were to hoist it on my head,' Or load it on my shoulder, then go wherever I want. Now, monks, what do you think? By doing so, would that man be doing what should be done with the raft? No, venerable sir. (laughs) By doing what should. By doing what would. By doing what would that man be doing what should be done with the raft? Having arrived at the far shore, he might think, this raft has been very helpful. Suppose I were to haul it onto the dry land or set it adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. It is by doing that that the man would be doing what should be done with the raft. So I have shown you how the Dhamma is similar to a raft being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Now this image too, I think, has all sorts of implications. First of all, it suggests that you know, when you make a raft, you do that because you have no other alternative and there is a certain urgency involved you put together in a makeshift way whatever you can to get across the river. Now in what way is the Dhamma similar to that? I think again it's a suggestion that we find what works for us in these practices, in these different traditions, put them together in our own lives in such a way that they can help Uh, guide us and steer us across the river of our life. There's a suggestion here that, again, there's not one single practice or way of doing things that everybody has to follow. You You create your practice. You put it together in a way that works. Now whether somebody else says that's not really Buddhism is irrelevant. Because in any case, when you get to the other shore, you leave the raft behind. You don't hold on to it as something iconic and sacred, but you let it go. So here too, not to think of the Dhamma as something sacred in its own right. The Buddha's teaching is a means to an end. It helps us get across the dilemmas, the conflicts, the sufferings we might have, but once it's served its purpose, though of course that might make that might take the whole of one's life. once it served its purpose, you let go of it. you don't need to hold on to these things once they've achieved the purpose that one has set them. so again to hold on lightly to the very practice itself and be aware of the tendency to make it into something holy. It's just a device. It's an aid. It can support us, but nothing more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.